You're listening to Garbage Into Gold, a Sixers podcast hosted by Brandon Apter and Jesse Larch. Part of Philadelphia Sports Nation, visit online at phlsportsnation.com. Garbage into gold. What's going on, everybody, and welcome into another episode of Garbage Into Gold. I am one of your hosts, Brandon Apter, and joined, as always, unless he's not here, by my co-host, Jesse Larch. Jesse, four-game losing streak is over. Feeling good ahead of another difficult stretch, but it's over, and they got their first win since Christmas, and it feels good. Yeah, I don't know if feels good's the right word because the way that game was trending, I thought it should have been over at halftime. Instead, we have another drawn-out second half, and the team just – they can't escape this habit of getting comfortable and playing down to their opponent. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I, I a little bit disagree with you there because Oklahoma City, although had not started the season well – recently had been playing really, really, really good basketball, uh, had come in winners of five in a row and nine of their last 10. So I think being on the home court for the Sixers was, was huge for them. And to get the dub against a team that had been playing well, even better. They are a better team than Oklahoma City, but I think that it was big for them to to be able to go back on their home court and win this. But what we're going to do this episode, we are going to get the bad out of the way first. So why don't we go back to the nationally televised game against James Harden, Russell Westbrook, and the Houston Rockets on Friday night. Really put a sour to my weekend prior to the Eagles season ending. So not a great weekend for Philadelphia sports. But, you know, the Friday game started off really well, like you the like it felt like maybe they had gotten over their their slump that they had shown so much in Indiana on New Year's Eve. Uh, they won the first quarter by seven points, but then they were outscored by fourteen in the second quarter and and never really recovered. They had a little little bit of a rally at the end of the fourth, but it was a little too little too late. Shot six of twenty seven from three. Another game where Joel Embiid looked kind of slow at times, couldn't really keep up with the uh, faster, younger Clint Capella, who scored, I believe, a career-high 30 points and grabbed 14 rebounds. It was a great Ben Simmons game, 29 points, 13 rebounds, 11 assists, but only seven points from each Al Horford and Josh Richardson. So on the whole, the loss to Houston, I think a lot of people viewed it as a loss on paper going into it. But after the first quarter, I almost believed that, okay, well, new year, new Sixers. They looked to, to space the floor well and, and hit their shots. But from the second quarter on out, really not a great showing from our hometown team. Yeah, and I mean, it's no secret to you that I'm a big fan of James Harden. I think he should be commended for his performance in that game as well. But aside from Ben Simmons, really nobody seemed to have that kind of competitive edge to them. Um, and Bede getting worked by Clint Compella was kind of worrisome for me. 
especially because I don't really grade Clint Capella that highly. I think he's a good enough big man, but he's a guy that really only does about one or two things. And if Embiid wasn't aware of those one or two things and was able to get destroyed by that, that's really concerning to me. Yeah, uh, and and I think it's the way that Houston moves the ball too. I think it showed a couple of the flaws that the Sixers have on defense when it comes to the pick and roll. Sometimes they sag off of it, and then you saw multiple occasions where Embiid kind of stepped up on it and then got beat by Harden lobbing it to Capella. So I think that there were many moments where Embiid kind of got beat to the other side of the floor, and then there were other moments where like, okay, do I collapse on Harden or do I stay back and let him hit a mid-range or try a mid-range shot? It's kind of pick your poison because if you let him drive and you cover him, you're going to get that alley-oop to Capella. If not, then you're opening James Harden up to a shot that he's going to make 99 out of 100 times probably. Yeah, I mean, you're right about that. But even the rebounding numbers worry me. And that's kind of been a common thread with Embiid where you know, I think we mentioned it before when he plays these lesser teams. Well, we mentioned it with Ben, but we're starting to see it with Embiid now where when he plays a lesser big man, he seems to want to wake up and feast more. But then when he gets challenged a little bit, and I think you could even say it happened with Steven Adams last night against Oklahoma City, where when someone tries to match Embiid's physicality, he kind of goes into a shell and really becomes an ineffective player. Yeah, I, I, I agree with you. And it's one of those things, too, where I think it's hard, hard to tell whether he's just slow or conserving his energy and the season-long energy conservation for the playoffs. Kind of hard to tell, but those lobs from, from Harden to Capella, really, it brought another thing to light for me that I believe that we've talked about in previous episodes. And it's one of those things, obviously, James Harden, is a better player than Ben Simmons and Joel Embiid, but they have a couple of options on offense to be able to go to. You have the Harden three-pointer, and then you have the lob, you have Westbrook, and you have a lot of options to go to, and it really brought to light, especially second quarter on, how hard it is for the Sixers to get an easy basket. And again, they shot six of 27 from three, and when you're not hitting them from three, it's not going to be very good from anybody else, and especially... Guys like Josh Richardson and Al Horford only give you seven points each. <clears throat> now, Richardson had a good game against Oklahoma City, which was good to see. But more often than not, I feel like Richardson gets a little bit of a pass from everybody. He plays good defense, but I feel like as a starting shooting guard, a little bit more of the offensive load needs to be put on his shoulders. Yeah, I think using to expect him to hit his open shots and you know contribute when he's asked you because he's... I mean, figure he's probably the third, fourth option in the offense. So he's not asked to shoulder a big part of the uh, big part of the scoring load. But when he is asked to, he needs to be able to knock down those shots. And if he's cold, I mean, we've seen it on a few occasions now where if they're not getting the points from him, the whole thing kind of falls apart because he's kind of the designated, you know, the designated catch and shoot guy with that starting five. It's not Horford. Harris kind of gets a little bit more creativity with his plays. So when Richardson's getting the ball, generally he's being asked to just put up a shot. And if his shot isn't falling, then there goes a whole aspect of the offense and the spacing becomes even more of an issue. 
Yeah, and and I think that when his three-point shot is on, he's very confident in it. If he doesn't hit his first couple, he doesn't really shoot it a whole lot. I think the way that he's succeeded so far this season is in a pick-and-roll, whether it be with Embiid or Simmons, and getting into that comfort comfortable range that he feels like in the mid-range because when he steps you know, between the three-point line and like the foul line and the mid-range, no matter really what angle that you're at, I feel like he is more comfortable there than anywhere else on the floor. That and then transition to, I mean, I think we've, if we can get more opportunities for Simmons and Richardson to run the floor together in transition, I think we see both of them really hit their potential, but that's just not realistic with the personnel that's on this team right now. Yeah. Uh, Houston, a team, I know this is looking way ahead. Houston, is that a team that you would feel confident with if, if the stars align and the Sixers make the finals? Do you think the Sixers could beat the the Rockets in, in a seven-game series? Yeah, I do. Um, I think, I mean, we saw Simmons shut down Westbrook again, which he did last year against Oklahoma City, but we know Simmons can at least take one prong of that attack out of there. Um, Harden is a different animal, but it's also in the playoffs, he tends to not get the same calls, which personally I think is unfair to him. You let the guy average 30 points all year and win an MVP. And then all of a sudden you kick the legs out from his game in the playoffs when you should be showcasing him. But that's an NBA problem. That's not really the Sixers problem. So if that makes him less effective in the playoffs, which evidence kind of shows it has in the past, that would benefit the Sixers. And even then, I think you could switch. You could let Simmons cover Harden and then Richardson on Westbrook. And I think that scenario would even work well for the Sixers. I would, again, just be concerned about crashing the boards because P.J. Tucker loves to crash the boards, and Clint Capella does too. And the rebounding, I think, is what truly sunk the Sixers against the Raptors. And if Embiid's still having issues attacking the glass like he needs to for this team to consistently win, I think he kind of gets a pass on that because he brings down 12 rebounds a game, but about how many of them are uncontested, you know, how many of them are against a smaller man. Like, he has a really hard time going against guys that either outwork him or are as big or as strong as him. Yeah. And I think that's a big thing that's not ever talked about. And we really need to see Embiid and the Sixers kind of address that and develop in that area. Because I I say it often, the best rebounder on this team is James Ennis. (laughs) And that's not a good thing. I mean, we saw it against Toronto. James Ennis was creating plays for this team by crashing the boards But the frustrating part was it was James Ennis doing the creating and everyone else was standing around watching everything happen. Right. So right now it looks like they're heading on the same path where, you know, no one seems to have the energy for that part of the game. And it's just those little things that are missing with the Sixers. Those the little hustle plays, you know, the little bits of IQ. Like these are the things that are probably the most frustrating watching a team with this much talent. Yeah, uh, and unfortunately, the Sixers won't get another chance at the Houston Rockets until March March the 31st on TNT. That'll be a home game, so hopefully Sixers will be in a little bit better of a place in, in terms of figuring things out. Um, but, you know, we don't, we don't want to spend much more time on the bad, so why don't we move to the good? And I know that you felt like this game didn't necessarily make you feel good, but... The end result for me is the end result. I know the game should have been over by halftime, but as we've seen this team, when they win, it's rarely in a blowout sort of fashion, especially against teams that 
aren't playing well. So 14-point lead in, in the second quarter, I didn't necessarily expect that to stay. I, I thought it said a lot about them to be able to close this game out when it got really close in the, in the closing minutes. I think guys hit big shots when they needed to. The team as a whole only turned the ball over 10 times, and despite being out-rebounded by 14, which is something you really don't see very often, they shot 50% from beyond the arc, which is a big change from their game against Houston. They shot 83.3% from the line, and they won the assist battle 31-17. to Both Joel Embiid and Ben Simmons had eight assists apiece, and the Sixers scored 19 points off 13 Thunder turnovers. So for me, it just, at the end of the game, it was a little nail-biting, but I think all in all, I felt a lot better about some of their issues than I did before. Obviously, breaking a four-game winning streak or a four-game losing streak is going to do that uh, in some areas, but I think the guys that we were concerned about had solid nights and, and, and not necessarily put to bed some of the the problems that we're talking about, but it looked a little more free-flowing overall. So I guess what what are your thoughts on the game as a whole, and then we'll go into a little of the specific performances. Um, I mean, MB with the finger injury obviously, you know, put a damper on things, and I think the eight assists may have even been a product of that, where he may have been less willing to trust his shot because it was so heavily taped. So maybe he was looking for his teammates more, but I think that is something that, if Embiid can keep that going, he can keep showing the ability to pass out of double teams or just find an open man in general. That will help a ton with some of this team spacing issues and the problems with creating shots. Um, you know, you see it with Nikola Jokic with the Nuggets all the time and how much that means to the Nuggets offense. If Joel Embiid can become, not that Embiid needs to become a pl- different type of player, I think he's already better than Nikola Jokic. But be more a little bit more of a playmaker per se. Yeah, just add that other dimension to your game so it has to be respected because that will not only find other guys more room, I think it will afford Embiid more room. And like I said, whether it was a result of the finger injury or maybe just Steven Adams not giving him you know, as much leeway as he gets from other centers when he's trying to you know, post them up and go to the glass, you know, whatever it was, Embiid should look at that tape and understand he can do that more often. Yeah. You know, maybe – Maybe the shots just weren't there for him, so he felt like he had to pass out of situations. But sometimes the pass is the right play. Yeah, I I agree with you there. And when it comes to him coming back from the finger injury, right now we don't know the severity of that. So hopefully it's something where if he has to miss time, he only misses a game, maybe two. Obviously with the luck that we've had in Philadelphia, all that I expect is – for him to come back with destroyed ligaments and and him to be out indefinitely. But hopefully that's not going to be the case. But anyway, I I think it just really proves that he is a resilient player. And so many of the national media outlets are just like, he needs to do more. He needs to stay in shape. He needs to do this and he needs to do that. But I think this game proved that the Sixers need to, to really like be clicking on all cylinders as a team for them to be able to win. I don't think they're necessarily in a case right now where even if Embiid scores 35 and everybody else has an off night where they're going to win all the time. I think this showed that 
like you said, he had eight assists and maybe that was due to his finger. But I think him having a more well-rounded stat sheet is really important for him too. And I think despite his finger injury, he scored eight of his 18 points in the fourth quarter. And, and that proves that, you know, he feels more comfortable at home and really embraced the, the atmosphere of the home crowd. And like he said, after the, the Rockets game, he doesn't like losing. And he knew that even though he dislocated his finger, he needed to be out there in, in light of the four game losing streak. So I think this, game really showed a lot of character for Embiid I think he um he helped space the floor a little bit for other guys too especially after his injury we saw Al Horford do some good stuff in the post but uh, as of this moment uh, he could miss the game against the Celtics on Thursday but um overall just a positive performance for me for Joel Embiid anything else on Embiid before we go on to the next guy I'm ready to go to the next guy. I mean, like I said, I would have liked to have seen him battle a little bit more because I the same thing with Capella happened with Adams, where Adams just kind of outmuscled him or outworked him for some rebounds. But again, the with Adams, you have to factor in the guy did just you know have his finger pointing east with his hand pointing west. Yeah, I think Adams is like one of the best. I think he leads the NBA in offensive rebound percentage too. Yeah, I mean, I love Stephen Adams. I'm, I'm not saying that Adams is a bad player. I just that's where I want to see partly as much as with the passing and all too, I want to see Embiid show up against those physical guys. You know, I feel like as he's gotten older, he shied away from the physicality a little bit. Where when he first came into the league, and maybe it's a good thing because of his injury history. When he first came into the league, when he was matched up against a guy that tried to play him physically, that's usually when you saw Embiid look like the most special player you've ever seen. That's when he would really rise to the occasion. Lately, he doesn't seem to want to engage in that type of thing as often, whether that's intentional, whether, you know, he's just thinking about the long haul, as you mentioned earlier, that's something to take into account. It's just personally, I would like to see him. I like to see him almost take it as an insult. You know, when someone gets an offensive rebound over him, get mad, try to get that ball. Back, yeah. I that feel like the thing, <laughs> going back to the Houston game when Capella beat him up the floor and, and scored those alley-oops, I feel like a year or two ago, if Embiid was dunked on or alley-ooped on, you'd see him kind of get pissed off and go to the end, other end, like demanding the ball and wanting to get revenge. And you're right. We don't necessarily see that as much anymore. Yeah. I think it, well, when we did our new year's resolutions last episode, that's what I said for Embiid is kind of get his edge back, you know, talk a little bit of shit a little bit. Get people, you know, take things personally. Try to piss people off. Because I think when he's doing that, he's a better player. Yeah. Personally, I don't care if people think he's immature for it. It's a professional athlete. How many guys are commended for it? Kevin Garnett universally is known as the best trash talker of all time. He's in the Hall of Fame. Right. Yeah. Yeah, it's hard hard to, hard to disagree with that. <clears throat> now, uh... The Oklahoma City game was the second straight aggressive game from Ben Simmons, finished with 17 points, 15 rebounds, eight assists, only two turnovers. Embiid and Simmons combined for just four turnovers overall. Um, and Ben was a, a team high plus 18. And you could really tell how effective his aggression was because he had 17 points. And while a lot of the points that he gets on a nightly basis are 
on the fast break or in transition, the Sixers only had nine fast break points against the Thunder. So I think that says a lot to if you're not going to shoot jump shots, you need to be more aggressive, especially when your team needs you. If Embiid didn't come back, I think he needed to keep that level of of aggression. But um, I think another positive night for Simmons, I think there were a couple moments in the Rockets game where even though he had a triple-double and they lost, he passed up shots that he should have taken, but we really didn't see that a whole lot in uh, the game against the Thunder. I thought he was really aggressive and, and took what the defense gave to him and, and wasn't afraid really to drive to the lane if he had his space. Yeah, I thought against Oklahoma City, Ben had a few instances where he really tried to take over the game. Um, a lot of times, I you know, you kind of saw him attack the rim at times where you normally don't see him attack the rim. You saw him, you know, run in, make plays over top of Steven Adams. You saw him challenge players, almost daring them to stop him. And that's the Ben that when he shows up, everyone understands how special he is. And you really even kind of forget about the jump shot issue. Yeah, um, I didn't even quick, think about I didn't even think about it in the game. I didn't even think about it. I saw earlier today, Ben Simmons last eight games. 17.1 points per game, 10.3 rebounds, 10.3 assists, 2.3 steals, one block, 56% from the field. Yeah, let, let me ask you this, though, and I don't mean to interrupt what you were saying before, but when it comes to the way that he scores is like 56% if you're a guy that shoots mid-range shots and three-point shots. That's something really good. It's something that you expect out of your big men that are around the rim. But his 56%, I know, like last night against the Thunder, I, I think he shot 50% from the floor. But are there still concerns for you with regard to his finishing and the way that he goes up around the net? Because I feel like there were multiple times where he missed easy layups or or uh, finishing opportunities against the Thunder despite having another strong game. So with him, I think you're right that he misses some that you wish he wouldn't, you know, look at there might be a little bit more routine, but he also has makes that really the only other guy in the league that makes them is probably Giannis or LeBron. You know, he he's so acrobatic with his body and knows how to use his length and his strength that he's actually able to make plays at, at and above the rim that the 90, 95% of the league just can't make. Yeah. Um, so I think you kind of have to take that trade off. Um, and even with, you know, we've seen the criticism the last few weeks with Brett Brown's comments on Ben and Embiid even kind of hinting at it. It's, I mean, they're kind of all eating their words right now because even during the losing streak, with everyone else being cold, Ben Simmons has been good night in, night out. Yeah. Um, I don't think he's the guy to fought for the losing streak, even though Twitter likes to disagree. And that's the easy thing to point to is, yo, he doesn't shoot the ball. But I don't really think Ben's had a cold stretch this year. And even if he has, he definitely hasn't lacked on the defensive end. He's found a way to contribute every single night. Um, and I'm starting to get a little frustrated that he's the one that's getting criticized. And, you know, they try to point him out as the weak link when I think he's far from it. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, I'm not trying to lessen his defensive effort or the stats that you just uh, spat off about the, the last 10 games or anything like that. But 
I think the reason he gets criticized is because when when this team goes through stretches of losing two, three, four in a row, if he has good stat lines, that's that's fine. But I feel like whenever they lose games, it's normally due to the spacing in the half court. And he's he is like him and Al Horford are at the root of the problems of, of the half court offense with regard to spacing because Ben doesn't shoot it. And, you know, Horford is not like he's just not a stretch four player. So, I mean, I understand the criticism. He's a guy you start three power forwards on a team and and he's a guy who pretty much he's there for his court vision and his ability to drive. But he doesn't stretch the floor, unfortunately. Yeah. And I mean, I'm not going to sit here and say that isn't an issue for the team because it definitely is. I just think that, you know, the guy does so many other things on a nightly basis and does those things at an elite level that, like, I just don't feel like he's the guy to try to scapegoat. Yeah, I mean, I think if it's more games like Oklahoma City, those games where you forget about the jumper because he's aggressive, I think that's different. He got to the line, too, wasn't afraid to get fouled. That was, if we're not seeing the jumper or a three-point shot, driving and getting fouled and going to the line is what we want like right next to that. Yeah. I also think, you know, he heard the criticisms too. And I think he's in a way trying to step up and be a leader where he'll, he'll never be a guy to open his mouth and call out a teammate, but for him to be getting called out by teammates and coaches, I think he's responding and he's kind of letting them know exactly who he is. And maybe he needed that. Um, I mean, I think the whole, I actually had a friend talking to me about it earlier today with the Brett Brown comments and him wondering, you know, are they going to make a move or this, that, or the other, you know, I think Brett's finally feeling the heat. And I think Brett's actually consciously trying to draw more out of his players. And I think by naming names and putting people kind of under the bus like that, he may have woke up a sleeping giant, Ben Simmons. Yeah, and I think that, you know, Brett Brown, you can say what you want positively or negatively about (laughs) the guy, but what you can't say is that he doesn't own up to the problems of the team. You know, prior to the game against the Thunder, he admitted to him failing Ben Simmons and setting that he wants to take, he wants Ben to take a three a game and eight free throws a game because since saying that, we haven't seen... A three-pointer, I'm not sure what the numbers are on the free throws, but it definitely hasn't been, you know, one, three, and eight free throws per game. But in addition to that, one thing that you said is that maybe he awoke a sleeping giant or is finding ways to get the best out of his players. Another thing that he said prior to the game is that he's been having to call more plays on offense, and it's not something he likes doing. Um he, he likes the game to come to his players organically, but with the way that the roster is constructed, unfortunately, that hasn't gotten to a point where it's comfortable for the game to come to them organically. So I think that also opened up maybe a flaw in Brett Brown's coaching strategy in that, sure, you have to, to have a good balance of, of calling plays and being letting the game come to your guys organically, but, but openly saying that, you know, I don't like to call plays isn't necessarily something that you want to see from your coach, especially from a team that prior to the game was, was losing four in a row. So I think 
it it's as much on Ben Simmons and Joel Embiid as it is Brett Brown uh, to to improve and develop his coaching in order for this team to go forward. But yeah, I agree with all of the stuff that you said. Um, but move, moving on to, to Tobias Harris, despite fouling out, it was another really good Tobias Harris game. Uh, one of the New Year's resolutions we both had for Harris was that we wanted him to cement himself as the team's scorer, the team's go-to guy, and the team's closer in the closing minutes. And, um, you know, he did just that, really. He hit a three to extend the lead to nine with just under a minute to play. He shot 7-11 from the floor, 4-6 to six from three. And really, the Tobias Harris that we saw at the beginning of the year that seemed hesitant to, to shoot the threes, I don't see any of that anymore. He goes up with confidence from the corners, especially on the angles, and doesn't really hesitate at all. So really, really another good Tobias Harris game against the Thunder. Yeah, and again, the same conversation I was having with a friend earlier, you know, because my friend, for whatever reason, was kind of harping on Simmons a little bit and trying to pinpoint him as the cause of the issues. I said, really, everyone has a little bit of accountability here. Everyone on the team deserves some amount of blame, except for Tobias Harris. I think he's the one guy that's really just shown up every single night. Aside from that cold stretch to start the season, I mean, he has been lights out pretty much on a nightly basis. You know, you're getting consistent efforts on both ends of the floor. You know, that signing looks better and better every game. Yeah, and he was great during the month of December. 16 games, playing nearly 34 minutes a game. Shot 47.6 from the floor overall. 37.8% from beyond the arc, which was up from 28.3% in 16 games in November. He averaged 21 points per game in those 16 games, in addition to six rebounds a game and uh, 2.9 assists. So, again, Harris has been worth pretty much every penny, and although he's not a uh, you know sharp shooter from beyond the arc, I think we've gotten a lot more from him than I've expected, at least, um, on the defensive end and also with regard to, to his drives and his mid-range shooting because that's a part of his game. I did not notice before he got here and in his limited role aside Jimmy uh, beside Jimmy Butler Simmons and Embiid last year. Yeah, I think he really got kind of uh typecasted when he came over last year with Butler and Simmons and Embiid here. Simmons or Simmons was the ball dominant guy, Embiid was the primary scorer and Butler was the fourth quarter guy, so it left very limited opportunity for Tobias Harris, but Everywhere he's gone in his career, he's emerged as a team's primary scorer, or at least one of the first two options. And I think here he's doing the same thing again, and really there's no reason to not trust him to be the guy right now. We talked about him as the closer. You mentioned how he hit that shot against Oklahoma City. If I had to pick a guy to hit the shot, it's going to be him right now. Really, I don't think there's a great option on this team, but he's definitely the one I would trust the most. Yeah. Um. So... Moving on to to Al Horford, a guy that's really been at the center of a lot of chatter amongst Philadelphia sports fans. Uh, he, he really had a bad month of December. You and I talked about it on the last episode when we were trying to give him a New Year's resolution or talking about if trading him would be a good idea. Um, but against Oklahoma City, he for the first time in, in a while, really, he looked like himself, hit... Um, Hit one of two from beyond. 
He had his first game in double figures since Christmas, and it was his uh, only the fourth time in the last 10 games he's scored in double figures. And I know he's not necessarily brought in for his offense, but he's a guy that you want to see contributing 13, 15 points per game. So he finished with 13 points on 6 for 10 shooting uh, and really looked strong in the post as well. It was a nice mix of him being able to stretch the floor and uh, getting back to what he does best in the post. Yeah, and I mean, it kind of frustrated me with his comments about not really feeling he's being used right because he's a guy that wasn't really being used a whole lot in Boston. You know, I think he's most comfortable in that role where he only has to hit a couple shots a game. He can play defense and he can set picks and move around the offense. But for him to have said that he doesn't feel like he's being used in the right capacity or like, I don't think he was being used too drastically differently from how he was in Boston. I think he was maybe just frustrated with himself. Um, It's nice to see him get a good game, but I, we still need to see consistency from him because they definitely put a lot of stock into that signing. And I was also a person very excited about that signing. So far, the return on the investment has been very poor. And they need to find a way to get him back on track. I would even say get him back on track in the locker room too because that's the big reason why they brought him in is for who he is as a person. Everybody talked about his character. And all I've seen him do so far is complain. So... I think we need Al Horford to, you know, maybe just swallow his pride a little bit, find a niche in the offense. And I mean, I'm trying to think of like a nice way to say it, but needs to just, you know, blend in. Yeah. And he's having a hard time doing that. I think it's weird that he went from being the guy that's all he did in Boston was blend in. He just fit everything they wanted to do, didn't ask for anything extra. And now all of a sudden he comes to Philadelphia and he wants to be something bigger than that. Um, I mean, I can't imagine he came here thinking he would have a huge role. You know, I think he kind of knew it would be pretty much for defense and hit a couple shots here and there. But if he has a problem with that, I mean, we'll talk about trades in a minute. I mean, unless he gets consistent soon, he's a guy I'd be looking to get rid of. Yeah, and the only thing that I would say in response to that <clears throat> is that during his time in Boston, sure, he was used as a four and as a five, but I feel like it's trying to find the role or, or the happy medium, per se, between what he was doing in Boston and how Brett Brown runs his offense. Because, again, this is not an offense that has Jimmy Butler or J.J. Redick. You're not running those kinds of of quick motion DHO plays. Um, It's not the teams that had Bellinelli and Ilyasova to to stretch the floor. So I think it's both an adjustment for Horford with regard to his role. I don't think it's like, oh, I'm not getting enough minutes. I think him settling into a role that's more stretch four and, and shooting pretty much the most three-pointers that he's going to shoot to this point in his career is an adjustment, and it's up to Brett Brown as well to then find out how to to get him open spaces on the floor, especially beyond the arc, to space things out for Embiid and Simmons. But, yeah, he's definitely an intriguing candidate with regard to trades, but we'll get to that. A couple more things with the um, Oklahoma City game. Josh Richardson, after a tough shooting night in Houston, uh, comes back, leads the team with a team-high 23 points, four assists. Um, 
one of the issues the Sixers have had over their four-game slump has been bench production, uh, specifically Mike Scott. He came into the game three for his last 19 from beyond the arc, but hit two really big triples in this one. Uh, They were up 98-97 with just over seven minutes to go in the fourth, and he hit a three to put them up. And they were once again up 101-99 with 5.52 to go, and he hits a three to put them up five. Uh, he's a guy that if they look to do a trade for anybody that has even like somewhat of a significant salary, he's going to have to be added into a deal just because of how things are. But I think it just proves his value that, sure, he's streaky, but they need a guy off the bench that can come stretch the floor and hit threes. Yeah, and I think those two ones he hit late against Oklahoma City or hopefully him getting the monkey off his back. Um, you know, that stretch he was on was bordering on absurd if it wasn't already absurd so for him to you know come up in a big spot for one for Brett to trust him in the spot and kind of give his confidence back in that sense and then for him to answer the bell and to hit those two big shots to help seal the win I think that'll do a lot for him going forward hopefully and then you know maybe we get the Mike Scott back that became the legend last year for the Sixers that he is now yeah one of the other bench guys that has not been struggling uh is trey burke had another strong game against the thunder 12 points in just over 15 minutes of play he was a minus four but shot five for seven from the field and two for three from beyond the arc um he was uh notified by elton brand on tuesday that his contract would be guaranteed so he'll be with the team And uh, after listening to comments from his teammates and Brett Brown, it looks like he is going to be the backup ball handler moving forward. It's not going to be Josh Richardson. It's not going to be Howell Neto. It's going to be Trey Burke. And I, you know, I'm sure you have some thoughts on this, but I think it's the best decision that they could have made. Trey Burke isn't the best player that you could have in that position, but uh, his movement alone creates spacing for everybody else. And, uh, the fact that he takes risks and and drives to the paint and isn't afraid to take a risky play from time to time, I, I think that's a good thing for them, and I think it opens up some opportunities for the Sixers as well that they didn't have when Neto was the guy. And I forget the exact stat that I saw on Twitter today, but the minutes that he and Joel Embiid share on the floor are very, very good when it comes to net rating. So I think the Burke decision to guarantee his contract was a no-brainer for Elton Brand. Yeah, and really he should have been the backup ball handler from day one. I know we talked about it before the season that we thought he would, like, wouldn't even have competition for the role, and for some reason he did. Um, I still don't understand it. I, no disrespect to Howell Neto, but he was just not close to the same level of productivity they're getting out of Trey Burke, and he wasn't a good enough defender to really warrant him being on the floor over Trey Burke. You know, We've seen Trey Burke in a few of his stops in his career now just have this ability to put up points in bunches and really kind of energize his team. And that's something the Sixers bench really hasn't had. Aside from like a rare night of TJ McConnell getting hot, there's never been that guy to come off the bench, put the ball in his own hands, call his own number, and just start putting up points. They finally have that guy, and I think the more they trust him, the more happy they'll be with the results. Um, Especially if... You know, we talk about Ben Simmons being a point guard that doesn't want to score, doesn't want to shoot. Well, now you kind of have a flip of the coin when you bring in Trey Burke for him. Because now Trey Burke comes in and he's a willing shooter. 
and he's going to test the defense in a different way and kind of maybe force some lineup and game plan changes just because he's so drastically different from what Ben Simmons brings to the game. Right. Yeah. Um, so moving on from the Oklahoma City game into our next segment, uh, we are just under a month to go until the NBA trade deadline on February the 6th. Reports are already out there that the Sixers are searching the trade market for perimeter shooting threats. It's obviously one of their biggest weaknesses. The ESPN trade machine has probably gotten a lot of action from Philadelphia 76ers fans in recent weeks. Uh, So I've compiled a little bit of a list of trade options and buyout candidates. So I'm going to go through those. And Jesse, I'll leave it to you to, to let everybody know our listeners know whether it would be a good fit if it's feasible at all and and maybe what it would take to get these guys so why don't we start off with the guy that the Sixers played in their most recent game uh, Chris Paul with the Oklahoma City Thunder his contract make thing makes things a bit tricky he's making 38 and a half million dollars this year 41.3 million next season and 44.2 million in 2021-22. He is averaging 16.2 points per game, shooting 46.5% from the field and 36.6% from beyond the arc. So this would be a deal that would obviously have to include Al Horford, some younger pieces, and draft capital. But all that aside, would this acquisition be okay to pair with Ben Simmons? Because there's been a lot of talk that Ben Simmons isn't a point guard. He's more of a power power forward. So if Chris Ball becomes a a guy in Philadelphia where he is the primary ball handler. How does that work with Simmons? And is this a feasible scenario for the Sixers to acquire Paul? I wouldn't really pursue this one. Um, I mean, Chris Paul's had an incredible career, you know, most likely a Hall of Famer. But, I mean, especially as he's gotten older, he's had some serious durability concerns. The cost you would have to give up to get him, I think, would leave the team's bench depleted with no room to play with. And then even on top of that, we just saw in Houston how he struggled to coexist with another star. And even in L.A., he had the same problem coexisting with other star players out there. So I'm not sure he's a culture fit. He may work scheme-wise, but even then, you know, every big game his teams that he's played on has ever had, he's always been unavailable. So he's not a guy that I would really want to get just because you can't trust him to be on the floor when you need him. And you can't really trust that he's going to play nice with his teammates. Yeah, uh, I, I think while it would be a nice addition um, to the Sixers lineup, I, I'm not sure that it's that it's really feasible with the contract numbers. <laughs> Chemistry of the team aside, um, I, I just don't think it's a deal that Elton Brand is going to to make because I think that it's very drastic in the first year of this team. We know Al Horford had a rough month of... December, but hopefully that turns around and it's just an outlier on the rest of his season. Okay, the next guy that we have from the Washington Wizards, uh, much talked about Davis Bertans. Uh, He is currently hurt, but he's averaging 15.4 points on 43.4% from three. The Wizards want to try and keep him, but if he's made available, there have been rumors that the Sixers, the Celtics, and others are are in on, on Bertans. How much do you give up for him when it comes to an expiring contract if he's available, especially with Washington wanting to keep him? So I assume they'll want some something of significance in return. 
Yeah, I mean, I'd give up, you know, some draft capital. I guess you may have to throw Mike Scott in that one, or maybe Zaire Smith alone might be enough to get it done. Um, but if he is available, he's a guy that I think would probably make a little bit of sense. He can kind of that Ursan Ilyasova role. Um, you know, a big man that can really get out and shoot the ball reliably. So if, they, if they're able to get something done with him, you know, I think it would be good. It would just then be the question of, you know, where does he fit coming off the bench? Is he going to play the three, the four? You know, you're going to have to maybe give Embiid less minutes or Horford less minutes in that case just so you can take the full advantage of what he is. So, yeah, there's questions with all of these guys, but he is one that I think would fit a lot better than probably some of the other names on this list. Yeah, I think especially if you'd have to include Mike Scott in a deal, he'd more or less slip into that spot off the bench, I would assume. Um, yeah. The next guy I have on the list is Alec Burks uh, from Golden State, averaging just under 16 points a game, shooting 36.4% from three. He would be a good addition, good young guard, but on a on a struggling Golden State team, how much are his numbers what they are just because he's playing on a team that isn't good? And would that be a concern when you're looking at acquiring a guy like that um, prior to the trade deadline? Yeah, I think you have to ask that question. Um, I think that he's probably another one of the guys that makes a little bit of sense for the Sixers. You know, if you could trade like a Furkan Korkmaz and maybe some second rounders for him, I think that'd be a really good deal. You know, if he can, maybe his shot gets better if he's on the floor of better players. Maybe he's only shooting 36.4% because he's taking so many shots right now. Maybe with a lesser volume, that number goes up. Um, but overall, I think, you know, it's another case where the Sixers lack small, shifty guards. And if they can get another one in here, I think that would really help the team. All right, moving away from small, shifty guards, uh, the next person that we will talk about is Kevin Love. Once out of Cleveland in the worst way, uh, it showed on the court. Forget who they were playing last week, but he was waving his arms in the post and more or less took a pass from Colin Sexton and angrily then passed it to uh, another guy on the Cavaliers clearly showing his displeasure and he's loudly voiced his displeasure for the direction of the organization with the Cavs GM. So the deal that's being floated out there with the Sixers and the Cavs would more or less be Kevin Love for Al Horford's swap. Would that make sense for Philadelphia to explore? I would do it in a heartbeat. I love that move. Really? I think Kevin Love is a guy you know defends, you know he rebounds, and he hits his shots at a better clip than Al Horford does. He has the ability to go inside the post. You know, you may miss out on that backup five. Kyle O'Quinn probably gets more minutes in this scenario. But I think Kevin Love is a better talent than Al Horford. I think people forget how good of a player he is, especially because of getting overshadowed by LeBron for a little while, and now that nobody's paying attention to the Cavaliers, people forget that Kevin Love was, at a time, he was probably one of the top five players in the NBA. And I think he still has that skill set. I would not write him off at all. The concern with him is obviously injuries. But if he gets to come to a scenario in Philadelphia, I think he may be invigorated. You may see an inspired Kevin Love. And you may, you would get kind of the things we're missing now. We talk about how Horford isn't comfortable shooting as many threes as he is, but Kevin Love is. So if that's what this team wants to do, I think Kevin Love makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Um, 
You make some good points there, and it's interesting to hear that because I feel like most people on Sixers Twitter is are not interested in a trade that would just be a, a straight-up swap. But yeah. So, real quick, I think Kevin Love's frustration is in part with the GM and all of that, but keep in mind how many players have grown to be disgruntled under Dan Gilbert's regime in Cleveland, including LeBron, including Kyrie. You know, he has a history of kind of estranging his stars, first of all. And then second of all, think of the position he's in where, you know, he left Minnesota to go to Cleveland to contend for titles. Two, three years later, he's the only one left. Kyrie and LeBron both leave, and he's stuck with that roster. Yeah. I mean, I'd be frustrated, too. Yeah. Um, I think that there's definitely a more professional approach that you could have to some things, but... When you are a guy uh, with the talent like he has, I-, I can understand the frustration level. I believe he talked to the media on Tuesday morning to apologize for his his on-court antics and on-court displeasure and that he needs to be a better uh, leader by example for his younger teammates. But, yeah, I mean, I think you having me have me leaning towards uh, being okay with a deal that would bring love to Philadelphia and send Horford to uh, Cleveland. I don't know how that respectful that would be to um, Al Horford, but I guess you can't really concern yourself with that at this point. All right. So moving on to Marcus Morris of the New York Knicks, one of the guys who's from Philadelphia, but hated by Sixers fans uh, starting crap with, with Sixers players on many occasions prior. Uh, So Mark Stein reported that the Sixers have some interest in the 30 year old forward He's averaging nearly 20 points a game and shooting almost 47% from beyond the arc. Is it worth taking on another forward and a guy with, with his personality for a team that needs guards who can create? I think his personality would benefit this team. I think, you know, that, that kind of um, lackadaisicalness that you see with the team, the lethargicness that they have, the playing down to lesser opponents – I think Marcus Morris would eliminate all of that. I think he would come in, he would open his mouth, and he might not—he might make some enemies, but I think people would listen to him more so than they are other people in the locker room right now. I also think he would get the fans' attention, being a guy from the Philadelphia area, you know, having that attitude, having that edge. You know, we ate it up last year when Mike Scott was getting in the middle of scuffles. Well, Marcus Morris lives for that. You know, I think he's a guy that would bring a lot of energy to this team and his performance. I mean, year in and year out, he's been a performer. He's been a very consistent player. You can trust, you know, he isn't going to shoot 47% if he comes here, but you can trust that he's going to hit his shots at a reliable clip. And I think he's a guy that, I mean, I wish you wouldn't have to give up Mike Scott in that deal, even though that's probably what happens. Because I would like a lineup where, you know, Embiid comes off and then you have maybe... Simmons, Seibel, Morris at the three, Scott at the four, and Horford at the five. Because I think that'd be a really effective lineup. But overall, I think he's a guy that this team should definitely, if they can get him in here, I think he would really help the team out. Yeah, so one of the deals that has, or potential deals that has come to light over the past week per ESPN's Adrian Wojnarowski, uh, I'm just going to say Woj, if... uh, The Pistons deal Andre Drummond. There has been some reports that the Atlanta Hawks are interested in uh, Andre Drummond. Uh, Some other guys on the Pistons could become available, and one of the guys that 
could potentially fit on the Sixers would be veteran guard Derek Rose. He's averaging 17.3 points per game, but shooting under 33% from beyond the arc. Uh, would you say that he's a fit, or would the Sixers be better off just, just riding it out with Trey Burke at this point? Yeah, I think he'd be better off with Trey Burke. I don't really understand all the Derek Rose love. Um, you know, he's flashed the last couple of years as he's gotten a little bit more consistent with his health. You know, you've seen flashes the MVP, Derek Rose. But if he was to come here, he would be a sub-level player and he would demand the ball a lot to be able to make an impact on the game. And I don't think that's something the Sixers really need right now. I don't think... I think he would slow things down and kind of hinder the offense more than he would fit in. Yeah, I, I agree with you there. Um, the last couple guys on the list, I just edited this, and I do want to thank Dylan and Jimmy from the uh, Philadelphia Sports Nation Talk Sixers chat uh, for for sending me some ideas for this list. Um, so the last three guys are more like reunion guys, and there's one more in the buyout market. Uh, we <clears throat> we talked about Covington before. I don't necessarily think they have the assets to acquire Covington at this point. But any interest with regard to trading for Andre Iguodala or perhaps uh, Dario Saric, who's seeing his minutes kind of uh, go down and down in Phoenix? I don't really love the idea of a Dario reunion. I love Dario as a player. But to bring him in just to be playing, you know, like 10 minutes off of the bench behind Horford and Embiid, I'm not sure that's the best idea and the best use of the Sixers' resources. Um, Iguodala is another guy where I'd love to have Iguodala back. I think he makes more sense. But unless you're bringing him back on a minimum contract after he's bought out, which it doesn't seem like Memphis wants to do, then I don't see that happening because I think his current contract's a little bit too rich for the Sixers. <clears throat> yeah, I probably wouldn't go after either of those guys anyway unless it it was like a, a deal where you don't necessarily have to give up much at all. Um, so moving on to the buyout candidates here, I'm just going to list the four that I have. I have um, Evan Turner barely playing in Atlanta, averaged 12.7 minutes per game during December. He hasn't played since the 28th of December, and the Hawks have come out to say that they want to give minutes to younger guys he had some success as a backup point guard for the celtics uh alan crab also on the hawks if uh he's shipped away in a potential deal for andre drummond he could be a good buyout candidate marco bellinelli uh has started to tally up some dnp coaches decisions um only shooting 34.4 percent from beyond which is his work worst mark since the 2015-16 season but we saw what he could do here he is a defensive liability but can shoot the three and then there's also Jeff Teague, who has a big contract and is coming off the bench now for Minnesota and could be a secondary ball handler for the Sixers. So any of those guys um, on, the, on the buyout market think would benefit the Sixers? I mean, I think Jeff Teague would be a great addition. Um, he's a guy who's comfortable shooting the ball, comfortable with the ball in his hands. So I think he's somebody who, if they could get him in here, would actually probably fit in pretty well. He'd probably be an upgrade over Trey Burke, and maybe you find a different role for Trey Burke afterwards. But that's the name that pops to me the most. I'm not too interested in the Bellinelli reunion. I mean, if there's no one else, then I'm not going to be upset about it. But like you said, the defensive aspect kind of frustrates me. Alan Crabb's another guy that 
you know, he's a consistent three-point shooter, but he's also consistently underperformed everywhere he's been. And I, I just have such a bad taste in my mouth from the first run around with Evan Turner that I don't even want to entertain bringing him back right now. Yeah. Uh, any other buyout guys that that you had? I mean, I'm looking around at uh, the league's three-point rankings, and there's not too many names that I think could be bought out. You know, maybe. Yeah, I'm trying to go through and see if anyone really jumps out to me. I don't think there's too many guys. Uh, Marvin Williams is a name that I've seen floating around. I think he can make sense. He's shooting 39.8% this year. I mean, for his career, he's been a really good three-point shooter. Generally, you know, not too much of a liability on the defensive end. He's not also a stud either. So that can kind of go both ways. But he's someone who I think might make sense and is probably maybe likely to hit the market. Um, Patty Mills in San Antonio, you know, if he gets released, we know about him and Brett's history. And, I mean, even his history with Ben. So if he becomes a free agent, he's probably likely to end up here, in all honesty. Um, San Antonio is continuing the struggle, so if they turn it around, he'll stay. I think he's a guy that Pop likes a lot. <clears throat> but other than that, you know, there's really not too many names that are clear right now. We still have a little bit of a ways to go before the buyouts really start to ramp up. Yeah. Um, so looking forward to the Sixers' upcoming schedule – after that four-game losing streak, they, they got a win against Oklahoma City, but things unfortunately don't get a whole lot easier for a team that struggles on the road. <clears throat> I believe they're 7-12 and 12 at the current moment at the on the road. Uh, so they're looking at their upcoming schedule. Nine of the next 14 games are on the road. Uh, includes matchups on the road against Boston, on the road against uh, the Mavericks, on the road against the Bucks, on the road against the Heat again, uh, and also includes a home matchup against the Lakers. Um, their next three upcoming games are Thursday the 9th, hosting Boston, which Embiid could meet, uh, could miss. I've been closely monitoring Twitter, and there's still no updates on, on his dislocated finger, if there's anything more on that. Um they play Saturday the 11th at Dallas. Uh, this time they will play against Luka Doncic. And then they'll have a little bit of a redo on Monday the 13th as they travel to Indiana against the Pacers. But with nine of these next 14 games on the road, what like what like a huge measuring stick for this team, especially after this four-game slide, this is really the stretch that they need to, to figure some things out. They should be getting Matisse Thibel back. Uh, he practiced on Tuesday, plans to practice on Wednesday, and couldn't re <coughs> could return against the Celtics. Um, but out of these 14 games, record-wise, what would make you feel good? Like, how many wins do you need out of out of the 14? Other than 14, obviously. Um, I mean, I would like to see 9 or 10, you know, especially with the road coming up. I mean, the road's the key thing to me. You know, good teams win road games, and the Sixers just, I mean, really under Brett's whole history, they've not been able to be consistent road winners. So I think that's where, you know, to borrow a quote from Mick Foley, they need to kind of show their testicular fortitude and show how, you know, do they really have it in them? Can they dig down deep? Can they show up on the road? Can they show up against lesser opponents? Those are the things this team hasn't answered yet, and if they can't answer it, then they're probably only a bounce from the playoffs pretty early. Yeah. 
So big stretch ahead for the Sixers. We'll probably have an episode after that Pacers game uh, next Monday. Uh, so want to thank everybody for listening. Uh, make sure that you're following us on Twitter at Garbage Into Gold. We are available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Anchor.fm, iHeartRadio, along with all of your other favorite podcast platforms. And just want to send a big thank you to our podcast hosting site, Philadelphia Sports Nation. Uh, they are enhancing your Philadelphia fan experience. You can follow them on Twitter at PHL Sports Nation and the Sixers branch of their site at PHL Sixers Nation. So again, thanks everybody for tuning in and we'll catch you next week on another episode of Garbage Into Gold.